This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. We cover all sorts of stories and topics on PreserveCast, and this week's episode finds us deep in preservation policy. Might be a little complex, but it's critical that preservationists from shore to shore understand and engage in Section 106 consultations. And we're doing our part to spread the word with Jacqueline Dreyer, a 106 consultant from Richmond, Virginia. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Jacqueline Dreyer, who is the owner and principal of Mulberry History Advisors, a firm that specializes in Section 106, National Register nominations, nonprofit program development, preservation planning, all of those things that matter to the people who listen to PreserveCast. So before we jump into this, and we're going to talk about how uh, anybody can get involved in Section 106 and what the heck Section 106 is, but before we do that, um, let's talk to you about your path to preservation. We share a, a common friend in preservation, which is sort of cool that we didn't know about. But what what got you involved and what was your spark, Jacqueline? So I went to college and I had been interested in architecture, but not so interested in architectural design that I went to school with the program. So when I was looking for a major, I came across American Studies. This was at George Washington University. And the American Studies Department at the graduate level had historic preservation concentration. And I thought, that is exactly what I want to do. You know, American Studies is really the analysis of cultural history. You learn all of this cultural history, but then you're thinking about historiography. You're thinking about why things got told the way they did. And you're talking about different identities, different perspectives about how and why we get history in the way that we sort of receive it in the present. And historic preservation was not a field that I knew about already, but when I saw that it was about sort of applying this American studies framework in my particular school to the study of architecture and the urban environment, I thought this is perfect for me. And before I'd even declared the undergraduate major, I had decided, oh, I'm going to do this combined bachelor's, master's degree. I'm going to focus in historic preservation. And sometimes you say something like that, take your first class and are completely wrong. But in this case, I was right. And I really loved the uh, program and I really got a lot out of it. And I was actually the last graduate of that historic preservation concentration. It's no longer offered. And I, I do think that's a bit of a shame because so many of the things we're talking about in preservation now about inclusivity, whose story gets told, how, why these things matter to a practice like historic preservation, you sort of received naturally through an American studies education. And I don't think it's too common to uh, have a historic preservation program housed in American studies versus more of an architecture school. So it was really a great way to get involved in and learn about this field. And so where did you, I don't know if we asked, but where did you grow up? And was there always an interest in history and things like that growing up? Was there some parents drag you to places? What's the what's the story there? I grew up in Clearwater, Florida, which is better known as a suburb of Tampa. And there's a pretty limited stock of historic buildings in Clearwater, although they do exist. I really had no interest in history until high school when a really great history teacher who taught us Mexican revolutionary history in this way that made it really exciting and relevant to the present got me very interested in history. 
But when I moved from Clearwater to Washington, D.C. for college, I was so enamored with the, I would say, superior built environment and the diverse mix of buildings. And it really made me excited. And so, and, and I just thought it was so beautiful and interesting. And so then having this, you know, academic language to begin to understand and interpret the built environment, both of a place like Washington, D.C. and of uh, a city with less historic uh, architecture like Clearwater was really exciting. And so what was your first job in the field? And and maybe then kind of beyond that, what are what are you doing today? Like, where are you geographically? And what do you do professionally before we kind of dive into the, the meat of the conversation? But where, where, where did you go from academia at the university to then you started getting paid doing what? So I did do some relevant work part-time in college, but you might say my first full-time work was serving as a Fulbright Research Fellow in Belgium, where I completed a book about adaptively reused art institutions and their lessons for American practice of adaptive reuse. But I really think of my next job as Outreach and Grants Manager at the DC Preservation League as my first kind of typical job. And while I was there, I was there for a little over three years. I led preparation of a dozen National Register nominations, which were completed um, with a very robust volunteer committee. And I did community outreach. I presented public testimony for more than 15 local landmark nominations, managed a multi-fund grant program. And there I got to dip my toes into Section 106. It was an excellent first job. The trust that uh, Rebecca Miller, who's the executive director there, put in me, put in all her staff, let me do a lot early in my career. And, and so today, are you still, yeah, I was going to say, so you're still, are you still based in DC now? No. So today I live and work in Richmond, Virginia, ancestral land of the Powhatan people. And in between DCPL and my work now, I held a few jobs. But today, like you said, I'm the owner and principal of Mulberry History Advisors. We specialize in uh, national register and local designations preservation planning, nonprofit programming, and Section 106 advising. And we do that work nationwide and occasionally in Canada. But before starting the firm, after leaving DCPL, I worked at the National Alliance of Preservation Commissions and then at EBI Consulting. And at EBI, I really honed my Section 106 knowledge and gained expertise, particularly with a couple of different agencies and today I also work as a senior planner for the city of Milwaukee. So that's remotely. Wow. So busy. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it shows. Um, just out of curiosity, what, where does mulberry come from? What's the, what's the mulberry meaning? Sure. So mulberry is a street here in Richmond. Uh, it's, I believe, the state tree or state berry. And... I love it because it. I think it connotes something very close to preservation. You know, of course, we talk all the time in preservation about wood, old growth wood. And, and you find them across the country. You know, Mulberry isn't limited to the Richmond, Virginia region. And our work isn't limited to Virginia. So I like that connection. Very cool. So, all right. So you have been involved in this work for, for some time. And... Uh, today, we're going to talk about Section 106. So what on earth is Section 106? 
why should preservationists care? Why should someone who listens to this who's just like, I'm interested in history and now I'm uh, 15 minutes into this conversation with a preservation consultant, why do I care about this arcane preservation law? What on earth is Section 106 and why should people care about it? Absolutely. I especially love the last question. Um, so first, the National Historic Preservation Act is our federal legislation that preserves and protects historic properties in the United States. And so the Act, Section 106, which we all just refer to as Section 106, but it's Section 106 of the National Preser Historic Preservation Act, requires all federal agencies to consider the effects that their activities, so what we'd call their projects, um, which are any activities that they carry out, assist, fund, license, approve, or permit may have on historic properties. And the process requires consultation with the public and with state and local stakeholders. And then to the question of why should we care, the answer is that this is designed to be a consultation process where the federal agency or its applicant lender, whomever, is saying, are there any historic properties in this area that the work we're doing could affect? And could that effect be negative? That's, that's really the question being asked. And so the agency or what's called its delegated authority, if we're talking about an applicant or other entity, they're required to do some research on their own to try to answer this question. But naturally, they are focused on a pretty big set of factors. They're looking at you know, achieving their project activity objective. And they're probably not based in the municipality where the work is happening. So they're heavily reliant on response from these local stakeholders, which can mean um, municipal governments. It can mean local, county, state, nonprofits, the State Historic Preservation Office, members of the public. Um, and interested members of the public, which could mean an affected landowner, um, a local neighborhood group. They're, the federal agency is really reliant on those entities to say, yeah, this is okay. There's not going to be an adverse effect on any historic properties, or no, there is going to be an adverse effect on historic properties, and this is how we would like that to be resolved. So... How does it actually work? Let's take, let's go from like soup to nuts. How does, so let's, and let's use a pretend project. Maybe you can explain to somebody so that somebody listening who either is involved in preservation has heard about this. Maybe they work at a museum and they, they've met, heard it mentioned in their community or somebody who just loves historic places and is worried when one is going to be impacted by some big federal undertaking, some big project. How does it work? And maybe give us a pretend a pretend project and the kind of thing that it would work. And we'll go from beginning to end on, on a 106 project and how people could get involved and where they could get involved. So it's a four-step process. First, the federal agency is going to initiate consultation. That means they're going to get in touch with entities who they think will be interested in the activity. So let's say that there's a project happening in Richmond, Virginia, and... Um, an a, a federal agency who owns a building here is going to make changes to their building. They own the building and they need to expand. 
It's a historic building. It's already been listed on the National Register. Everybody agrees the building's historic. So their expansion is going to involve changing the building. So the first thing that they do is reach out to State Historic Preservation Office, Tribal Historic Preservation Office, um, the local government, local nonprofit to say, hey, this is what we're planning to do. They are also going to schedule a public meeting, most likely. They're going to run a public notice in a couple different potential places, including the Federal Register. And that's going to be how they initiate the consultation process. So interested people will come to the public meeting. Um, people may sign on. People or organizations may sign on as consulting parties at that time, or they may just decide to continue attending meetings. And the term consulting party is important. That is a, an entity. It could be an individual, a member of the public, or it could be one of these um, government or nonprofit organizations we're talking about who says, we have an active interest in this project. We want to be kept up to speed. And so they will receive information about the project. They'll be given the opportunity to comment on the project as it proceeds through the process. And the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation is the federal agency that oversees the Section 106 process. They sometimes act as a consulting party, but not terribly frequently. And so the consulting parties are going to work with the federal agency on the subsequent steps. Step two is to identify historic properties. And in step one, in initiating consultation, the federal agency is going to tell everybody what the project is, what they want to do, they might present some alternatives and explain why they're going with, why they want to go with the, the um, alternative they've selected, which they'll often call the preferred alternative. So step two is identifying historic properties. In our example, we're redeveloping a historic building. That historic building is obviously going to be affected. But for um, the section 106 process, we develop an area of potential effects. So that factors in a lot of different things. You have effects directly on a building, like the historic building being redeveloped, but also you have visual effects, you could have noise effects, you could have a number of other effects. And you have to figure out what geographic area are we actually looking at to assess effects on historic or on national register eligible buildings. So for the for the uh, historic site redevelopment of the Richmond Agency building, that's probably going to be defined as places where you can see the historic building. So it might be several hundred feet, even a little more away from the building. And so once we have the area of potential effects, you can identify, okay, you have to do some survey work and say, what are the National Register listed and eligible buildings? within this area. And in order to do that, you need to um, go out, survey the buildings, and also look in a number of places like the State Historic Preservation Office's records, past surveys, and combine both the existing documented historic or historically eligible sites and identify new ones. Those are typically going to be sites that are at least 45 years old and, of course, meet one of the four criteria for listing on the National Register.
So then you move to step three, which is assessing effects. And you're assessing effects that this proposed activity by the federal agency will have on all of those previously identified historic resources. And it's important to point out historic resources aren't limited to other buildings. The example I'm using where we're redeveloping a historic site, um, there could be both above ground effects and also archaeological below ground effects. And it's typically when you're involved in archaeological effects that um, tribal historic preservation offices, federal and state recognized tribes will be particularly interested and likely to engage with and undertaking. And like I said, effects can be direct. So with our expansion of this historic building, to expand a building, you're probably going to have to destroy some portion of historic fabric, or at least of building fabric, in order to add an addition to the building. Um, that is a direct and possibly adverse effect. You also have indirect effects such as noise, visual effects. Visual effects can actually be direct or indirect. And for each historic property in the area of potential effects, an effects determination has to be made. There's a few different determinations you can make. The project could have no effect on historic properties. It could have no adverse effect on historic properties, or it could have an adverse effect on one or more historic properties. And of course, in some cases, some undertakings don't affect any historic properties at all. And when that determination is made, Section 106 consultation can conclude. But in our example, we know that there will be effects on historic properties because we're redeveloping historic buildings. And so if you determine that there are no historic properties, no effects on historic properties, or no adverse effects on historic properties, consultation can conclude. On the other hand, if there's a determination that there will be adverse effects on historic properties, then you proceed to the fourth and final step of the Section 106 process, which is resolving the adverse effects. And I think that that could be a good place, maybe right there, where we take a pause, take a break here, and then come back, because that's the point at which, I mean, so up to this point, for people listening, some of this is kind of happening in the background. The agency, their consultants, everybody is kind of like figuring out what are the impacts, and there are consulting party opportunities along the way here. But the rubber really hits the road in a lot of these situations where it's how are we going to resolve this? Are we going to avoid it? Are we going to mitigate it? And what does mitigation look like? And so for people listening who want to get involved, this is oftentimes where there, there's the most opportunity for engagement. So let's take a pause, come back, and let's talk about that, that fourth and final step about how you are going to resolve that issue and the adverse effect. And we'll do that right here at Preserve Case. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, today, we're excited to be joined by Jacqueline Dreyer, um, who is the principal and owner of Mulberry History Advisors. Um, and we've been talking about Section 106. 
and how people who get involved in historic preservation, who care about historic places, can use this uh, this opportunity to make sure that big projects at the federal, sometimes even the state level, if there's a state version of this, um, can make sure that historic resources are protected, um, and at the very least that damage being done to historic resources through uh, a federal project are um, mitigated. So before we left, we talked about the three first steps, and now we're at step four where it's like, okay, how are we going to resolve this impact? So how are we going to resolve the impact? What are the options? And more to the point, you know, for somebody who's getting involved, what should they be pushing for at this point? Um, and then maybe we'll talk about like realistic mitigation requests, what you can expect um, and what the process can and can't do. Because I think a lot of people think that you can stop a project with 106. And that rarely, if ever, really happens from my understanding of it. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but what can be done at this point? And, you know, this is sort of an audio resource uh, for people listening all across the country who maybe are looking for background in, on 106. So this is a good opportunity for people to kind of understand what they could be pushing for. So there's four, there's three ways to resolve adverse effects. You can avoid them. So that means tweaking and undertaking somehow so that there no longer are adverse effects. That for any consulting party is going to be your goal if it's at all feasible. Then there's minimizing adverse effects, which is what it sounds like. And then when neither of those two are possible or when you've done them to the full extent, there's mitigation, which is really what we're talking about. And so avoiding an adverse effect, sometimes it's simple. With something like our historic site redevelopment example, you might say, well, we were going to put the addition on the front of the building. That's the federal agency's preference. But the primary elevation of a historic building is often the most significant, certainly from an artistic perspective. So maybe the consulting parties push back the SHPO, the local government, um, the local preservation or historical nonprofit and says, can we put the addition on the back of the building? And the federal agency looks at their property and says, oh, okay, we have room for that. So now you've minimized an adverse effect. There's still an adverse effect. You're still going to destroy historic building fabric to expand the building, but you're not doing it on the primary elevation. That's a pretty obvious one um, that you're not likely to get something quite that simple. But I think it kind of explains what we're doing. Then more kind of more realistically, when it comes to mitigation, we're talking about things like much more specific design considerations. So with historic site redevelopment, things like, okay, well, how are we going to set back the addition? How are we going to shape it so that it's both distinct from and compatible with the existing historic site? Where are connection points where we can build this addition in that are not going to have a dramatic effect on the remaining elevations of the existing building? How do we, of course, make sure there's no structural damage to the remaining portions of the historic building? And some undertakings, some adverse effects, some agencies they will have common mitigation measures. For example, if we pivot, if we look at a specific federal agency, with the FCC, with the Federal Communications Commission, they send out, for many states, the highest number of undertakings. And that's because every applicant to build every single cell tower has to go through the 106 process for every single 
proposed cell tower with some with some exceptions. And with those, if there's a pole that's going to be placed directly in front of a historic building and ruin the view shed, often it's possible to just say, hey, can we put the pole across the street so it's no longer in front of a historic property? And that's not too hard. And the applicants for these FCC licenses don't want to go through the mitigation process. That's a volume business. It's not like redeveloping a single historic site. So they'll move it and you can conclude with no adverse effects. Um, similarly with FCC, you can do things like what's called stealth, which means camouflaging an installation that's going to be co-located atop an existing historic building. And you can be very creative with this process. You can camouflage a, an antenna in a way that makes it much less visible or much less obvious from the street and so that it blends in better with the historic fabric of the building. And once you get to the point where parties have resolved their differences or the federal agency has decided how it's going to conclude, they're going to conclude the Section 106 consultation with a legally binding memorandum of agreement or programmatic agreement. And as you mentioned, Section 106 very rarely results in stopping a project. It's possible for the agency to make a determination that the project just should not proceed. That does that is occasionally proposed or does occasionally actually occur, but it's uncommon. And because an activity that a federal agency wants to do has some rationale behind it, sometimes it can mean you're just kicking the project down into the future somewhere. Um, I've heard about that with certain transportation projects where there's community opposition to all alternatives and the federal agency says, well, we won't proceed, but eventually they're going to have to. The road will eventually have to be moved or widened. And so that just means you're going to reopen consultation in 10 years. And an important thing to emphasize about consultation is the federal agency ultimately gets to decide how to proceed. They're consulting with the public. They're consulting with the stakeholders but they're not bound by the consulting party preference. And so they can override. That's important to, yeah, it's important to understand that they kind of make the, the decision themselves, which is an interesting position for them to be in. When it comes to the mitigation piece, and the, you, you talked about like with FCC and stealthing and different options and things like that. But if someone's listening to this and, you know, there's a, uh, low-income housing tax credit project going in and so it's receiving federal funds and you know they're going to destroy historic resources in the process um and you know they're going to try and do decent design to fit in the new building into the community but what are what are mitigation strategies that people should be pushing for what what is good mitigation um I personally have opinions on this. I'm not a big fan of what I call document and destroy, which is basically knock things over, but take pictures first. Uh, I think that that's um, as close to useless mitigation as exists, uh, but that's a personal opinion, I suppose. Um, but what are, what are, what, what's, What's happening out there that people should be thinking about? Is it financial um, mitigation? Is it um, you know trying to fix another resource because you're sort of a no net loss situation? What are you seeing out there, and what what do you like? 
so like you say, document and destroy, if you will, is a very common mitigation approach. It's commonly proposed by many agencies, uh, things like HABS hair documentation, survey of like resources, often in a pretty limited geographic area. And in some cases, those may satisfy a consulting party, but they are the least creative options and they don't necessarily give that back that much in the community. So there are increasingly people who push for um, survey. Survey can kind of go either way. Survey can be very meaningful in a community that has been undersurveyed. So let's say that a site associated with an underrepresented community is being destroyed. That is getting increasing recognition as being, frankly, unacceptable. And so if you've still been able to, still been unable to avoid the destruction of that resource, you could ask for, I would say, more financial resources to carry out a very significant survey and maybe even designation of like resources in the community. So that's one example. Uh, certainly a kind of like for like, no net loss uh, approach also occurs. There are also sort of creative approaches such as um, in Washington DC, the redevelopment of the St. Elizabeth's campus, which was uh, a very famous national historic landmark uh, campus that was a site for those who had been deemed at the time insane, but was considered a very forward-looking public mental health institution. That is be that has been redeveloped for the Coast Guard and for the Department of Homeland Security headquarters. So there, there's been significant demolition of buildings. But one thing that's been interesting in the mitigation is that there has been there have been public tours allowed of this campus for many years, despite the fact that it's now a secure site because of the Department of Homeland Security's presence. And so the public is able to go and see and learn about the very complex history of the site and only on the outside, you can't go inside those buildings. But that's, that's an example of a creative approach. And it's something that's hard to do. Yeah, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we were engaged in one at Preservation Maryland, so people know that PreserveCast is, is powered by Preservation Maryland. Um, but um, we were involved in one for a project called the BNP Tunnel, which is a huge Federal Railway Administration project in Baltimore City. Um, and in that case, we pushed for a mitigation fund, a grant fund, uh, and it's like a billion-dollar project. Um, and so we established Upon construction, we don't haven't seen the money yet, but a two point seven million dollar um, mitigation fund um, that we will manage as a grant program for properties in that community that's being impacted by it. So there are opportunities if you push the right way um, for financial uh, compensation and mitigation. There's, as you say, there's there's other kind of things, and I think it's important. Is there a place where people can look and see examples of good mitigation if they're staring down the barrel of something in their community and are trying to come up with creative ways of approaching it. I mean, I guess they could always hire uh, Mulberry um, to come out and do that work for them. Um, but what are some other, is there places where people should be looking? What are good, good, good resources on this issue? 
So that's a great time to, if you are not in the position to hire somebody, to reach out to your state historic preservation office or to reach out to a local or state nonprofit and tell them about your project and ask them for examples of good mitigation. Because unfortunately, there is no database really of great mitigation examples. Uh, Certainly, if you're somebody who's a member of a group like the Historic Preservation Professionals Facebook group, people will share examples there when asked and often with great specificity. But a difficult thing about the Section 106 process is you kind of have to know a little bit what you're looking for to find the right resources to help you when you don't have the background. And so reaching out to a preservation organization who you already know or who's very responsive is a great way to get that information. And I just think it's worth saying that one of the challenges of doing creative mitigation um, is that on the consulting party side, they end up making a big investment. So the consulting party has to be prepared to use its time, its resources to make that mitigation happen, both like with the financial mitigation you're talking about. So um, DC Preservation League had mitigation-based grant funds and they employ somebody, you know, I did the work of managing that grant program. And so it can be very hard for a local stakeholder to take that on unprepared, but you can hopefully structure things like financial mitigation in a way that makes it feasible to bring on a qualified person to do that work for you. So if people want to learn more about you, they're listening to this and they're like, wow, I need to hire someone like Jacqueline to come and handle this project for me, or I want to do a national register nomination, or I want to do A, B, or C, um, or they just want to learn more about the kind of work that you do. Where can they find you? You can find me at Mulberry History Advisors website, which is mulberryhistory.com. Love connecting with people there or on LinkedIn. Perfect. And um, those have all been the easy questions. Now, what's your favorite historic place or site? I find it really hard to commit to a favorite, probably like everybody. But I really love Canal Walk here in Richmond. It's really beautiful. You get to see the canal. You see downtown, train tracks, street art. And along the way, there's all this historical information about the city, the people, the infrastructure, and there are traditional markers, but there are also these decorative manhole covers that have imagery and text. And for me, I think it's a great example of making public history engaging, feels relevant because you're walking around, you're looking at the ground and you see it. And it's just a really lively place. People walk, run, bike there all the time. Well, I like that. And I think that this is the first, I always like pointing out first some preserve cast. And I'm pretty sure that was the first time someone mentioned decorative manhole covers. So I think that that, that takes some type of um, win here. And we'll have to try and find a picture of that for the show notes. Um, Jacqueline, it's been exciting talking to you. I mean, this is sort of nitty gritty stuff, but it's really where like the, the real work of preservation happens sometimes and where we, we have the opportunity to either save things or make a positive impact or lose resources. And so this is an important conversation, one that we can kind of hang on to as a resource and that people can come back to time and time again to kind of refresh themselves on 106. We'll make sure that there's a link to your site in the show notes. Um, and just really appreciate you having with us, uh, joining us today to talk about this important issue. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.